Hello there, Think Squad. This is Joel Sedicase, host of the Think Pod, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Back in February, I had the opportunity to go down to New Orleans, and I participated in Declaring Truth at Mardi Gras, which is a mini conference and street preaching and evangelism event hosted by Zoe White and Declaring Truth Ministries. And I absolutely loved getting out on the street and not just street preaching, but interacting with folks as they walked by, handing out tracks and start, uh, starting up spiritual conversations with people that I would have never otherwise met and hearing objections and pushback to the Christian religion and faith that I never would have otherwise heard. The great thing about it was that these objections were not textbook things that you read you know, in seminary or uh, even that you necessarily get on popular YouTube videos and, and that sort of thing. These objections were off the wall. Some of them were cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Others were just really profound stuff I'd never thought about. And then some were your run-of-the-mill um, atheistic type objections. Well, over the last few months, I've been doing something that has provided the same kind of rush and diversity of interactions as my street preaching experience. I've been doing apologetics AMAs, Ask Me Anythings, on Discord, a social app where there are voice chat and text chat rooms. One of the moderators of the politics server on Discord has been inviting me, his name is Ellipsis, he's been inviting me to do these apologetics AMAs and we've been doing them on Thursday nights once or twice a month. And I gotta tell you, they have been so much fun. It's exposed me to all these Christians and mostly non-Christians, including um, people with you know, more traditional views like Muslims and people who just who, who hold um, all kinds of crazy off the beaten path type philosophies and religious worldviews. And the questions and objections that I've been able to handle and respond to have been really, uh, really fun. Apologetics is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And interacting with these folks has been fun, not just because it's fun to see how the Bible answers questions and objections, but also it's fun to evangelize. It's fun to tell someone about the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, my own faith has been grown by it. And I want to share this experience with you. So here's the next installment of these AMAs that I've been doing. I hope it's edifying to you and entertaining, but also, I hope you hear something that will help you become better equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message in the next conversation that you have with someone about philosophy, religion, theology, etc. So without any further ado, here's the next installment of my Apologetics AMA on Discord. First question, well, Bill is not here, so we'll just... Uh skip that then from on let me edit the room now okay um then let's see here so who has questions anybody have a, a question for joel uh, joel the um apologist said a case that's his middle name you know <laughs> my parents named me well oh okay blaze the games uh what denomination are you joel um i my church is Reformed Baptist, and um, so, and I'm a member of my church. So officially, I'm a Reformed Baptist. Um, although 
technically we're an SBC church, so Southern Baptist Convention, but that can mean many different things. Um, we happen to be a Reformed Baptist church in the Southern Baptist Convention. As for me personally, I hold to New Covenant theology. Uh, there's not really a denomination that goes with that. So I'm in a Reformed Baptist church, and there are a few points of doctrine that I differ with, like my pastors on, but we get along just fine, and uh, we get we um, are members in full standing of our church. Excellent answer. Um, next question by Nana Doobie Pan. Oh yeah, guys, if you want to ask in voice chat, just put BC before your question, so you can ask it in person, maybe have a little bit of an interaction. By Nana Doobie Fan, what is the meaning of life, Joel? Ah, that's kind of the perennial question. Well, um, the meaning of life is to know, serve, and glorify God. That's the purpose for which we were all created. Happy to elaborate on that if needed, but uh, if that's if that's all we're looking for, then happy to share it. Yeah. Hey, dude. I'm okay. People aren't uh, wanting to. Again, uh, if you want to interact with Joel, might be a little bit more fun. If you want to talk, just put BC next to your question. Just to move next on to the next one. Um, by Jesus. Period. Question. Opinion on Zionism and what happened in the Middle East. Uh, that's kind of broad, but I'll lobbing it your way, Joel. Okay. Uh, great. So I'm definitely not a policy expert. Um, and it depends on really how you define Zionism. So uh, do I believe that the Jewish people have a right to live and defend themselves and exist uh, in their ancestral homeland? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do uh, I'm not. Uh, dispensationalist, which is a view of the Bible and the, uh, in particular, the end times that, that says that there is a particular prophetic role that the nation of Israel needs to, um, be in place for or, um, accomplish, you know, in the future uh, before Jesus can come back. So in that sense, I'm not like maybe that kind of Zionist. Um, but, um, you know, there are a lot of Christian Jewish people living in Israel. There are a lot of Christian Palestinians. So I, I don't love to see um, attacks from either side. Um, more often than not, my understanding of what recently happened where Israel had to defend itself using its Iron Dome defense, um, I believe that was instigated by Hamas from the Palestinian side. And my understanding of it is Israel was defending itself. And as a sovereign nation, of course, I believe that it has the right to do that. Um, so that's pretty much where I stand on that. I, I, I love the Jewish people. I love the Palestinian people. I want to see many, many more Jews and Palestinians become followers of Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, who's also the savior of, of everyone, Arabs, Jews, Gentiles, everyone. Excellent. I'm going to go ahead and, sorry, text question people. I'm going to go ahead and skip right to Adam because he's got a voice chat question. So I'm going to go ahead and meet you, Adam, and you can go ahead and ask it yourself. Uh, go, you are unmuted if you want to uh, use push to talk or open mic. Adam. Adam Thomasius. Thomasius.
Uh, okay. Are you there, buddy? Oh, he's typing right now. Okay. By the way, Ellipsis, are you hearing any kind of an echo from me at all? Oh, no. No echo. Sounds fine. Clear. Okay, great. We're good. Great. Oh, uh, by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier. I am recording this, or at least I'm attempting to. Oh, sure. So if you want to let folks know, I like to... Yeah, uh, no worries. Yeah, um, we are recording. I'll put in the title. Yep. Cool. Usually they're, they're pretty recorded. But um, no, uh, so I'll, I'll ask Adam's questions. So it's because it's actually kind of smart. Should the Apocrypha be considered canon? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, so for those who don't know, the Apocrypha is a series of books that some Christian traditions or or Christian-ish traditions include within the canon of Scripture. When I say canon, you know, I'm not talking about the weapon that fires large projectiles. I'm talking about C-A-N-O-N, the, the rule, the, um, the, that's what the word canon means. It's the, the authoritative books that belong in the holy text, uh, in, the, in the scriptures, in the Bible. And the Apocrypha is a collection of books that are primarily written in between the end of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and the beginning of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, or Mark, who was probably the first one chronologically written. And uh, so you've got these this collection of books, and the Roman Catholic Church includes them in the canon, and, I, and the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, I believe, but Protestants don't. And, and so why is that? Some people say, well, Protestants took those books out of the Bible. But actually what happened was those books were never accepted by the Jewish people as canonical, as canon. So because of that, the early church did not recognize them as canon either. Um, and although they were viewed as helpful and possibly had elements in them that were true, they were not considered to be canon. And they weren't actually even officially recognized by the Roman church until the Reformation kicked off and the Protestants officially denied those books. And the Protestants had good theological reasons for doing so. First of all, there's the history of them not having been accepted by the Jewish people. Um, the, the Jewish believers of the Old Testament era the um, and the Second Temple era. But also, theologically, they actually don't agree with the rest of Scripture. There's, there's parts in them that actually teach uh, errant doctrines. And, uh, for example, the doctrine of purgatory is based in these apocryphal books. It's not actually expressly, explicitly taught, but it's sort of... It's alluded to enough that the Roman church has been able to sort of uh, pin that doctrine to one of those passages in the Apocrypha. So um, the Protestants, we don't believe in purgatory. It's not a biblical doctrine, but the Roman church, the Catholic church has a lot invested in that doctrine of purgatory. And uh, so they, they need the Apocrypha to be there. That's not, I'm not saying that's the only reason why they want to keep it in there, but no, those books should not be considered canonical. Um, and it's, it's hotly debated. I fully realize that. And I've, you know, if, if you think they should be in there and you've got great reasons for it, listen, I've got nothing but respect for you. I, I'm just, uh, I'm just not convinced. I think there's very good reasons for keeping them out of the canon.
There we go. Thank you so much. Sorry, I was editing the channel. Uh, hope that uh, satisfies your question. Um, here's a um, theological question for you from uh, Suduk. I'll go, uh, I'll go ahead and unmute you, Suduk. Go for it. Suduk. Hey, um, so I was just curious. Uh, I guess I'll have a follow-up question after my initial one. Uh, but I was wondering if you believe in a sort of divine, absolute morality, you know, the sense that... Uh, all, all humans have this intrinsic um, understanding of uh, uh, absolute right and wrong and have always had that sort of understanding. Great question. Um, a short answer is yes. I do. I do believe that. I, I believe what scripture teaches when it says that um, in Romans 2.15, it says that even those who don't expressly believe in God, Gentiles, unbelievers, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's Romans 2.15 in the ESV. And so, yes, there is an intrinsic morality that God has written on the hearts of all people, whether they're religious, unreligious, um, atheistic, or, or what have you. And that's, that's why there are, are mores, laws, um, ethics in every society. Um, so I guess my follow-up question would be, why does it seem like those ethics and moralities and, and laws don't, don't seem to be consistent from society to, to society or even from time period to time period? Even in the Bible, like, um, one thing that I think pretty much every modern civilization can agree on today is that, you know, like, pedophilia is wrong, slavery is wrong, but there's never any instance in the Bible where this is, like, anything that's, like, uh, expressly you know, um, condemned in any way, uh, in my, as well, as far as my understanding goes, but even in the societal acceptance and the laws, like you say, um, they, they kind of sort of seem to evolve or develop over time as our, you know, uh, ethics do in my view, but how do you, like, how do you, how do you, uh, I guess, justify that observation? Oh yeah, man. Uh, that's a great question. So, um, first of all, when it comes to pedophilia, um, there, it, it's definitely condemned in scripture. Um, scripture teaches that, uh, that sexuality, that sex is between a married man and woman. Um, never a child. Um, Jesus himself said in Luke 17 too, it would be better for him, for, for a person, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And so to cause a child to engage in sexual immorality or to use a child in that way, uh, Jesus basically says, look, before you do that, wrap a humongous stone around your throat and hurl yourself down into the sea. And if you know the first century view of the sea, it, it represented chaos, the abyss, doom. Basically, it's saying, uh, doom yourself before you ever cause a little child to sin or to stumble. So pedophilia, absolutely off the table. Um, the prohibition on incest, that is biblical. That comes from the Bible. And um, the Old Testament expressly forbids it. The New Testament forbids sexual immorality, which is an allusion back to that Old Testament standard. Um, so, so yeah, the reason why I as a Christian know that those things are wrong is because God has revealed them to me in his word. Um, I also do have a conscience. So there are certain sin that I just, um, that I find revulsive. 
um, as I'm sure you do as well. But you're right in that the the things that I find repulsive and the things that you find repulsive might not be the same. And and my culture and your culture or our culture and somebody else's culture might have different mores and ethics. And so why is that? Well, there's different reasons for that. Part of the reason for that is because some of the things we call sinful aren't actually sinful. You know, there are some cultures where you can't drink alcohol. Well, drinking alcohol is not a sin, although drunkenness is a sin. But some cultures take that fact that drunkenness is a sin and, and they go a little too far with it. You get the teetotaling movement. You get the um, the prohibition movement, which if you go back in our history, we probably needed that. I mean, our alcohol was out of control in the United States in the early 1900s, late 1800s. It was, it was insanity how much people used to drink and the way that alcohol devastated our society. So they outlawed uh, alcohol. Um, a lot of people say that was a failed experiment. Some people say it actually worked. But, um, you know, other cultures, uh, you know, I've even heard of cultures where um, loyalty was frowned upon and uh, the greatest um, virtue you could have was was stabbing somebody in the back, betraying someone. So you're right. There's definitely, there, there's morality that um, that varies from culture to culture. And and we have to acknowledge that fact. And we have to say, well, if God implanted morality into each person, as the Bible says, why is there differing morality? So I think it's a very good question. Um, the answer, I believe, can be found. There are several passages in the Bible that talk about um, how God created man and what happened since he created them. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes 7.29, here's what it says. Only this have I found. I have discovered that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God, when God created humanity, he made us perfectly upright, perfectly moral. Our morality was perfectly in line with his. So, you know, betrayal, sexual immorality, lying, all of these things would have been absolutely repulsive to us. But what happened was we fell, we sinned, we denied God, we decided that there was something better than God out there. Not that there actually could be something better than God, but that was our flawed uh, pursuit. And um, and as a result, all of us have gone astray. Romans 5 is a great passage that talks about this, especially around verse 12. It says that, essentially, it says, trouble, death, and sin came into the world because of one man's sin. And because of his sin, Adam's sin, the first man, we've all gone astray. There are other passages that say we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've sought after our own way. And the Bible calls that sin, even the very wandering from God itself is sin. And the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. So why do you have some cultures that are extremely pro-life? They would never think about killing their unborn children. And then you've got cultures like ours where we codify it. Uh, it's not codified as law right now, but it's the highest court in the land has said, no, it's okay. A mother, a mother can kill her child. Why is that? Well, it's because there are things that we value in our society. We've gone astray. We value sexual libertinism and sexual license. And we, we want to be able to enshrine our, what we view as our freedom to have sexual liberation, something that's been falsely called sexual liberation. But to do that, we need to be able to kill the product of sex, which is children. So the Bible has another word for this. It's called suppressing, suppressing the truth. And um, we don't, we don't suppress the truth because we think it's a fun thing to do. According to Romans 1, 18 through 24, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God is the source of all righteousness. We want to be unrighteous, so we suppress the truth. Now, what happens when you have a bunch of people suppressing the truth? You have a culture that is going to 
um, have certain values that are in line with God and then other values that are very much not in line with God, not in line with God's morality. And that's where you're going to get these differing standards. When Adam sinned, we all died spiritually. And so, um, you know, imagine a bunch of uh, groping blind people, you know, groping around in the dark, trying to feel our way towards the good, but um, never knowing anything but darkness. That's about as successful as humanity has been in getting to God through our morality. So, yes, there is an absolute morality. Um... The fact that we have laws in the first place, the fact that we have a conscience in the first place points to that. We are moral beings. We recognize that. The fact that we all go astray in many ways only makes sense if you assume that the Bible is true, that there is an absolute morality. We all recognize that and we condemn one another for being bad. I mean, go on Twitter sometime. That's what we do all the time. You know, go around Discord. Um, so we, we recognize there is an absolute standard. We also recognize that other people aren't living up to that standard. And if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we ourselves are not living up to that standard either. The only way to account for that, I believe, is to recognize that we fall short of the glory of God, that that God has given us that absolute morality. We know we don't measure up. And uh, as St. Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, until they rest in God. So that is why God had to send Jesus, or didn't have to, that's why he chose to send Jesus, to die for us, to redeem us, and to restart humanity. And the incredible thing is when you have Christian societies, when, when people become Christian and societies become Christian, you get a remarkable uniformity in morality across cultures based on the Holy Spirit that is now indwelling people. So you'll actually get a, a reconformity back to God's, uh, what the Bible calls the mind of Christ, the, the, the way that God thinks about right and wrong in the world. So there is a way out of that, um, that, that cultural disarray, that moral disarray, but that way out is only found in Jesus Christ. Excellent. I believe that should answer your question. Um, by the way, I just posted in chat. If you guys are muted, re-muted after uh, asking a question voice chat, either when you leave the room or after the AMA, just DM me and I shall unmute you. Please be in a voice chat while that happens so I can. Uh, next question. We have a question from Waffenhoff. Uh, I'll go ahead and unmute you to ask the question. Be nice. Hello, Joel. Hello. Hey, um, so sorry if this doesn't come out right. Um, English is not my first language. All good. Um, but I was just wondering, do you think the millennium of division between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church will ever be mended? <sighs> um, I don't know. I don't know. If so, there's only two ways it could possibly happen. So for those who don't know, the Eastern and Western churches split. This is an oversimplification, but they split in 1054 due to a, um, a two-word clause in, I want to say, is it the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. I should know that. Nicene Creed? The Philo... philo, philo. Philoloque. I can't. Yeah, yeah. The the Uh, I've only I uh, I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud. Actually, I've only read it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But um, 
but uh, but basically it's it's this little clause that says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which I actually do believe is more biblical than just saying he proceeds from the Father. But uh, all, really what happened was the East and West... The, was experiencing a lot of tension and that was just a straw that broke broke the camel's back so they've been they've been apart for over a thousand years now there have been some olive branches um offered by both sides i believe that there are even some some denominations some some um uh, what would you call them rites within the Eastern Orthodox Church that are also in communion with um, like the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church. So there is a little bit of crossover, I believe, now. Um, I, but again, I think there's only two possible ways that unity could be achieved. And there's a good way and it's a, there's a, one's a good way, one's a bad way. The bad way would just be a superficial kind of political reunification where there's this surface level way of saying we're going to agree and we might even have to agree to disagree or we're going to ultimately decide, you know, look, even if one side gives up the, the philoloque or the other side adopts it, that's all well and good, even if they achieve organizational unity. But the reason I say that it would be a bad option is because um, – the, the East and the West, the Roman Church and the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, need to reunify around Scripture, uh, around the Gospel. And there's a reason why the, there, there were the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, sola fide, sola gratia, uh, sola Christ, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Those five principles of the Reformation essentially... Are, are an attempt to reclaim and preserve the biblical gospel. And a lot of people look at the church sort of writ large, the universal church here on earth, and they'll say, um, the church is divided. Jesus prayed in Romans, or in John chapter 17, rather, that the church would be one. Why isn't the church one? Why is it so broken up? Not only between Eastern Orthodox and Catholic, Roman Catholic, but also all the, the hundreds or thousands of Protestant denominations. Um, that's that's all true and I grant that but there is an incredible unity that churches who actually have the biblical gospel the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone according to scripture alone through Christ alone to the glory of God alone across denominations there's this transdenominational unity that Presbyterians and Charismatics and um, Reformed Baptists and New Covenant theologians, they all have that is centered not on organizational political unity, but around the gospel. So for me, I don't really, I think it'd be cool, I guess, to see East and West get back together. I, But if it's just a superficial, if it's, if it's centered around anything other than the biblical gospel, they've completely missed the point. Because it's the gospel, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, and both traditions claim the Apostle Paul, the gospel is the power of God, according to Paul, unto salvation for everyone who believes. So what I like to do, what I really like to see is I want to call Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox believers back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that they have to give up all their liturgy and the smells and bells and all that and the beautiful architecture? No, not at all. But unite around the gospel. And 
you know, there's incredibly, I do think that that kind of unification is actually happening. It just might not, it may never happen organizationally, but there are Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox believers who are uniting around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, to me, that unity is far, far, far more important. <laughs> 